on Palm Sunday, the ultimate king made his big entrance onto the stage of the city of Jerusalem. But instead of trumpets and hype, this king rode humbly on a small donkey. With our study leader Dave Wurtzen, let's turn to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, and ask ourselves, why did Jesus ride a donkey instead of a prancing steed? Why did his followers pave the road with their garments and palm branches? Why did the stones remain silent? Entrances are important, so the musical groups use a warm-up group so that when the big starter comes out, everybody applauds, everybody's ready, they're ready to go. They drop their Bibles and everything, they're so excited. You ever notice that at a political convention, you know, when you're watching either the Republican or the Democratic convention, you ever notice these days, now with TV and everything, you know, the convention goes through all the rigmarole. We all knew the last Republican convention, who was going to be nominated, but it builds and builds and builds, and you see popcorn shots of grandfather back to the convention floor. Why? They're getting you ready for the entrance, and suddenly that special time comes, and in our political, the way that we do things, the presidential candidate is finally nominated. And they walk in through the back and the Secret Service agents come first, you know, and they're looking all around, you know, they're always so inconspicuous as they come in. And then it's like the trumpets blare and the balloons go up and here comes the presidential candidate. Entrances are important. If Queen Elizabeth is going to make a big entrance, if you were English today, you would be used to all the fanfare of a big royal celebration. Entrances are important. Now today we're going to look at the Lord Jesus' entrance, the way that he made his big debut, the way he came on the scene as the king. We want to ask some questions. Number one, we want to ask, why in the world did he come in on a donkey? You would expect the Lord to be gracious to us and have the Savior come in on a prancing quarter horse, you know, with its muscles flared out, its head back and prancing up and down all excited. I mean, you would expect it to have that quarter horse just as hot as it could be and have the king come charging into the streets of Jerusalem into the temple complex. Comes in on a donkey. You know, up at Word of Life, we used to take care of donkeys. We used to ride three and four-year-olds on donkeys because they were kind of, you know what it was like. Even worse, in some, some of the burrows we have. You know, from Mexico, we had these little burrows, and, and it was hardly anything like at the rodeo when the big head of the horsemanship came in on this charging stallion. Why did he come in on a donkey? Second of all, a very strange thing happened, and I'm sure that a lot of mothers went bananas because when our kids throw their clothes all over the floor, which is an everyday occurrence, Mary doesn't like it. I mean, that's a major, major thing in our house. You know, would you pick up your stuff? You know, any moms identify with that today? All right. Can you imagine hundreds of people that take off all their J.C. Penney's jackets, all their outer garments, and they throw them on the pathway of this donkey? Now that's really tough. Why did they do that? Okay, why did they do that? A final question we want to ask today is, why did the stones remain silent? A strange question. Why did the stones keep quiet? You say, well, Dave, that's easy to answer. Stones always keep quiet. Let's look at the account. 
We'll begin in Luke chapter 19. We'll look at Luke chapter 19. This triumphal entry is told in every single one of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I've given you all the references in uh, Mark chapter 11, 1 through 11, Matthew 21, Luke 19, and John 12. Every single one of our Gospels have this account. So evidently it's very important. We begin in chapter 19 of the Gospel of Luke, verse 29. After Jesus had said this, verse 28, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to, to, to Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus is coming up from the city of Jericho. He's just healed blind Bartimaeus. He's just worked that tremendous miracle, and he begins to walk the 3,000-foot ascent up to the city of Jerusalem from Jericho. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, those are two little towns um, on the other side of the Mount of Olives, on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. And as you come up from Jericho, you come right up the back side of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus stops at these two little towns, at the hill which is called the Mount of Olives. Now in the Old Testament, the Mount of Olives was a mountain that became associated with tremendous messianic associations. The book of Zechariah spoke about this mountain breaking in half and the Messiah standing on this mountain became very much associated with the Messiah. It was also associated with a place of prayer. You see there are olive orchards. Even today there are olive orchards all over the Mount of Olives and you could make that deduction because it's called the Mount of Olives. We call Cedar Hill Cedar Hill because of what? I hate them, they give me allergies, but that's why we call them that. So the Mount of Olives was called that because it was a grove, a beautiful grove of olive trees. Even today, in fact, Bethphage, even today it's like that. Bethphage is called the house of unripe figs. You can imagine what that town did. And so it became known in ancient times as a place of prayer because if you're raised in a place where there's a wooded area nearby, if you're raised in an area where you can get out by yourself, that's the place to go and pray. So even in the time of David, as David fled from the city of Jerusalem, the Old Testament tells us that as he came and fled from Jerusalem and came up on the Mount of Olives, that he poised for a few minutes at the place where the people prayed. And so from ancient times, the Mount of Olives was a place of worship to the Lord at a place of prayer, associated with some tremendous prophecies about the Messiah. The Lord Jesus came to this mountain about a week before he was crucified. Now he sent his disciples on ahead, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, verse 30, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he has told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, the Lord of the colt asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord, the Lord needs it. Let's ask that first question. What was our first question? Why not a stallion? Why just this humble, unbroken colt? You turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. We can begin to put together the mystery of why the Lord came in in such a humble way. Genesis chapter 49. It's one of those portions of Scripture. Joshua, praise the Lord, started reading through the book of Genesis. I, I think he's through the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah and several other things. But he told me he's going to try to get through the book of Genesis. And I'm trying to encourage him. That's a long book. 
You know, I remember when I started reading through the Bible, you can make it through Genesis, get about halfway through Exodus. But boy, have you ever made it into Leviticus? That was tough, right? Well, Genesis 49 is one of those passages you probably don't study a lot in your quiet time. But look at verses 10 and 12. Concerning Judah, in verse 9, it tells us that he's going to be a lion cub. It talks to us about his lion characteristics. And then in verse 10, it says this, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Now, that's an incredible statement. Can somebody tell me something about the character of Judah? Can anybody remember what happened to his younger brother named Joseph? He got sold into Egypt. Does anybody remember the name of the brother that came up with a plot to sell Joseph into Egypt? Judah. Now remember that. That's very important. Reuben was the oldest brother. Reuben was the brother that came up with the idea of not killing him, but let's put him in the pit. And Reuben's idea was that he could come back in the night when his brother definitely had scattered and he could get Joseph and protect Joseph from the viciousness of his brothers. That was Reuben. He was too scared to stand up to them as a group, but he was still trying to help his brother. Judah was the one that saw the traveling merchants going down to Egypt, grabbed Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces, for, uh, 30 pieces, of, 20 pieces of silver, I believe it was. All right? That was Judah. Years later, years later when Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt, guess who stood before him again? Judah did. But one of the incredible things was is that Joseph maneuvered Judah right back into the same situation that he faced early in his life. In fact, he made the odds even greater. He said, Judah, you can save your neck. You can go back to the land of Canaan. Just leave your little brother Benjamin here because he's the one that stole the cup. And Joseph maneuvered his big brother right back into the same circumstances, only this time... Judas said, no, please let my brother go. I will stay. I will do anything. I will be your slave. I will be in prison for the rest of my life. But please don't enslave my brother. Let my little brother go home or my dad will die. You know what that shows you, brothers and sisters? Now listen, it's really important. People change. Men change. A man that sells his little brother into slavery is a bad man. If an older brother in our church sold his younger brother into slavery and then lied about it and told his father that his little brother had been killed by a wild beast, is not a good guy. They wouldn't have a good reputation in Midlothian. Feel that a little bit. But as an older man, he was different. You know why? Because of God's grace. And God's grace was so almighty that when he looked down through the quarters of time, and he chose a line for the Messiah to come to. He chose the line not of Reuben. He chose not the line of Joseph, but he chose the line of Judah. Why? Because of grace. And that's what the Father is predicting here in these verses. He's telling us that the scepter will not depart from Judah. Judah's going to be the one who's the ruler. He with the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until he comes, and here's a prediction of the Messiah, until he, the Messiah, comes to whom the kingdom rightfully belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. 
Do you understand that one day a son of Judah is going to be worshipped by all the nations? There's going to be united nations and a son of Judah is going to walk into the united nations and all the nations of the world will celebrate and worship him. If you go to the United Nations today, you can go into a chapel and you can pray to any God you want. It's up for grab. It's like a religious smorgasbord. You just go in there and you pray to the God of your choice. That's where the nations are today. They're groping. They don't know who God really is. But one day there will be a chapel in the United Nations and the only rightful worship and prayer that will be done will be to a son of Judah. Don't ever forget that. It's very important. But notice it says he's going to bring peace to the nations and notice how he's going to come. In verse 11 it says he will tether his donkey to a vine. His cold to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. It's a picture of prosperity. It's a picture of a king that brings unbelievable prosperity. And he comes riding not on the war stallion, but he comes riding on the symbol in the ancient world of a king who's coming in peace. The son of Judah riding on a donkey is the rightful ruler to whom the obedience of the nations is due. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. The story develops a little bit further. King David is on his deathbed. He's waning away. He's becoming very weak. Some of his older boys are vying for the throne and they are going to make uh, an attempt on uh, a for a coup to take over the kingdom of David. Bathsheba gets word of this plot, if you don't remember the story. Bathsheba gets word of the plot and she comes to the elderly King David. And she pleads her case and she says, David, I believe that you said that Solomon, our son, would be the next ruler. And there's this plot that's happening. Solomon's older brothers are trying to take over the throne. You must do something. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 28, David gives his answer. Then King David said, Call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence, and the king took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel. Solomon, your son, will be king after me. And then Bathsheba bowed down. Verse 32, Then King David said, Call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, when they came in before the king, he said, Take your Lord's servants with you and set Solomon, my son, on my own mule and take him down to Gion. And there have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon. What do we have again? We have another king. This time it's not a son of Judah. It is a son of Judah, but it's become much more narrow. It's a son of Judah who is now a son of David, and it's Solomon, which means the king of peace. The word Solomon means the peaceful one, the one who brings peace. And he's anointed king riding on a humble donkey. And that's a symbol in the ancient world of a king that's coming not for war, but to bring peace. And Solomon rode that humble animal and he was declared with a trumpet blast the rightful king of Israel and the plot fell down. Turn to the book of Zechariah for the final Old Testament 
key to the saga of why in the world the Lord Jesus entered on such a humble beast. Look at Zechariah. Right at the very end, one of those hard books to find. I'll give you a chance to find it. Zechariah 9. Just look where your Bible is really well worn and you'll find Zechariah. All right? Zechariah chapter 9. Don't feel too badly. I majored in Old Testament and Zechariah is a hard one for me. It's amazing how some of these sections, especially the minor prophets, kind of get lost in our reading. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Tucked away in this book that for many is so obscure is an unbelievable promise. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. The daughter of Zion would be Jerusalem, and it would be a symbol for the entire nation. So rejoice, O nation of Israel. Why? Shout, daughter of Israel. See, this is the reason why. Your king comes to you. Your king, the rightful ruler, is coming to you. That's why you need to shout. You need to celebrate. You need to have the kind of exuberance like you would have at a political convention or when a king is going to be inaugurated. See your king comes to you. He comes with righteousness. That's what we need. Boy, I heard just, I've heard some rumors there's another break in Congress, some more hanky-panky, something, Ill- something illegal's gone on again. We've gotten callous to that, haven't we? And it says that we should shout for joy because here's a ruler that you're not going to find out has his fingers in the pot and is fooling around in a lot of other areas. Here's a king who is righteous and he comes to you having salvation. Notice how he comes. He comes gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Has he come? He comes gentle. He comes bringing righteousness. He comes bringing salvation. So we turn back to our text in Luke chapter 19. We ask the question, why did Jesus tell these disciples to go up? Do you realize, if you think God is out of control, if you think things are happening that are catching uh, God by surprise, consider this. Before the beginning of time, Jesus knew that there would be this little animal born of its mother, He knew that it would be located at an exact place, probably in the city of Bethphage. It's hard to determine whether the city was Bethphage or Bethany. He knew exactly where it would be, what time it would be there, and he knew the role that the sovereign Lord had planned for that humble beast. You know, when you read the text, critical scholars will bend over backwards to say, well, Jesus probably prearranged it you know, called ahead on his uh, southwestern telephone line and, and called up and arranged like a taxi on the donkey so he would be able to make it in. It always amazes me how scholars will bend over backwards and they'll kind of insinuate, well, the text insinuates that Jesus had foreknowledge of this event, but we don't want to challenge your faith too much so you don't have to believe too much in miracles, so maybe Jesus prearranged it. It's amazing to me how the critical scholars come up with that kind of stuff. Because once again, I feel, as I read the text, it's very obvious that the text means to imply that Jesus knew where this animal was in the village, and he knew who owned it, and he knew what would happen when the disciples went to get it. And I think the text purposely implies he had foreknowledge of those events. And I want to ask you, Do you believe he had foreknowledge of that? 
You see, a lot of times when I ask a critical scholar, I would say, well, do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth had foreknowledge of that event so that he would know in his sovereign plan that that animal would be there? And I think that a lot of critical scholars would honestly say, Dave, no, I don't. And I feel like saying then, why do you struggle so hard with Christianity? Why don't you just get rid of it? Because that's not such a big thing for what the Bible claims about Jesus. In just a few pages, it's going to claim that this king rises from the dead. Now, what's harder to believe? That he rose again from the dead or that he knew where a donkey would be? And I'm trying to make the options really, really strong. Because in our day, things are very, very confused. And there's a lot of sloppy thinking. And when I find that there's tremendous strength, I'm faced with a challenge. Do I believe that 2,000 years ago, a flesh and blood son of Judah, son of David, in the line of King David, a king who would bring peace, do I believe that he came to this planet and that he knew where a humble beast would be? And my faith answers, yes, I do. And from the depths of my being, brothers and sisters, as I grow older, there's tremendous strength in that faith. There's tremendous comfort in that faith. It's a comfort and a confidence that intellectualism can never bring me. Intellectualism without Jesus casts me out in a sea of relativity where everything is empty, where everything is, is vanity, and like we learned last night at a banquet, we cry out with Woody Island, what are we going to do when the party's over? We're not just saying, what are we going to do when all the party's over, when all the rigmarole ends? What are we going to have then? Our faith says that we live on a planet where a king has come that knew every detail that would happen in his life. That had foreknowledge over the beast just like he had control over the sea. He sent his disciples to that village and the disciples started untying that animal. Now in Texas, that could be a grievous offense, especially many years ago. Stealing animals is not a good thing to do, is it? What would you think? You had your animal tethered up, suddenly some strangers come to town, and they untie your animal. You're going to get uptight about it. Well, the Lord, the master of this, of this animal, says, what are you guys doing? And there's a tremendous play on words in the text. There's a tremendous play on words where it says the Lord or the owner, the master of the beast, says, what are you all doing? And the disciples' response is this. The Lord has need of it. The Lord wants to use it, to paraphrase. Tremendous play. Who really owns the animal? We've learned last week when we talked about materialism, who really owns all of our stuff? And this owner of the beast, I don't know his name, but went down in history as the owner of the animal that was the burden-bearing animal for the King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, as I read that text, I, I said, Lord, how many times do you say to me, the Lord wants to use it? The Lord wants to use it. And what do I say? You see, the Lord wants us to enter into that glorious freedom that it all belongs to him. The Lord has need of it. The Lord wants to use it. And it begins right with our entire body. Our body, our life belongs to him, not to ourselves. We need to use it. The Lord wants to use it. Let him use it. 
all of our belongings, all of our assets, all of our gifts. The Lord comes to us and says, let me use it. And the only response to that is, sure, go right ahead. It already belongs to you. And because that owner of this humble beast was willing to do that, he goes down in history, and I'll take that place. Be fantastic. Go down in history as the individual that provided the donkey who would bring the Messiah on the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. What are we doing with our things? The Lord had foreknowledge. We learned that the true owner of the beast was truly the king of heaven. I want to stress one other thing. When the Lord says the Lord has need of it, the word that's used for Lord can, can mean owner or master. It can even mean just the casual sir. Like we would say, yes, sir. Yes, Lord. You could use it like that. But throughout the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is used in a very special sense for the Lord, Yahweh, Lord. For the ultimate God. And a reader of this text in Luke and Matthew and Mark in the first century couldn't help, especially after the events of the resurrection, they couldn't help when they heard the Lord has need of it. They couldn't help but hear God, God needs it. What I want you to catch a hold of, we believe Jesus is the Lord. One of the major concepts that John tries to get across to us in his gospel is that Jesus is God. And what I wanted to do is just to bring out another text that implies that very carefully, just assumes it. The Lord is Jesus. And that's why we praise him. That's why we worship him. Let's ask the next question. Why in the world do we have the garments thrown all over the pathway of Jesus? Turn your Bibles back to another text I'm sure you read often. Turn to 2 Kings. Maybe this will give you an idea that maybe you need to read the Old Testament. We all do. 2 Kings chapter 9. This is a story of Jehu. And Jehu is relating to his companions what has happened. Now look how they respond in verse 13. They hurried. They took their cloaks and they spread them under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and shouted. The New Testament fulfillment of this royal uh, symbol is that we say as we throw our cloaks before Jesus, all hail King Jesus. Now let's look finally at why the stones remain silent. The Pharisees got all uptight about what, what the people were crying out. One gospel says they said this, another gospel said they said this, and another gospel said they said this. Obviously they couldn't be all right, right? If you young people go away to college and a guy starts to talk to you like that, it's obvious that the Bible's an error. Men alive, they don't even have the recording right. You know, one gospel says he said this, another gospel says he said this. They can't all possibly be right, can they? Now, if I present that to you in a certain context, it sounds like a very powerful argument. But one of the things I want everybody to remember as they face the realm of the criticism of the gospel, be very, very careful about claiming that you are more accurate about what happened 2,000 years ago than someone that was actually there. How many of you have ever been in a crowd at a football game when a great superstar comes out and the crowd begins to shout? And one guy hollers, he's the greatest! Another guy hollers out, you can do it! Another guy hollers out, they swear and they say the opposite, you know. And the crowd just is coming on back and forth, all different things they're saying. 
The Gospels aren't in error. One recorded what one of them heard. Matthew records what he heard. Mark probably records what Peter heard. John records what he heard. What he heard. And all this cacophony, all this noise, all this yelling and this praising and this shouting, this joyous celebration, there's many different statements that are made. And the Gospels tell us the heart of some of those acclamations that were given. The first one is one you all know well, Hosanna. Hosanna! The crowd started to sing, Hosanna! What does that mean? Well, to us it doesn't mean anything. I've never heard an English word, Hosanna. Great, praise, greetings, or something like that. But Hosanna means something. It means save us. Please save us. Now it's true as that word, that, that, that acclamation began to develop, it did come to mean just kind of a greeting. But in this context, I think that it goes back and has the force of that original meaning of that Aramaic phrase, Hosanna, Hosea, Hosea now, Hosea now. I did my dissertation on Hosea. And there you can get it. Hosea. It's from the word that means salvation. So if I say Hosea nah, it means save us. Please save us. It's a beseeching, an exhortation. So the crowd's yelling to Jesus, save us. Save us. Hosanna. What else did they cry out? Son of David. Son of David. Save us. Son of David. Remember what we put together from the Old Testament? What are they crying out? Save us. Messiah the son of David. They say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed. Blessed is the one. The word blessed means the one who can take us straight towards the goal. The meaning of life, the meaning of history, the meaning of existence. The one who can give us a sense of wholeness in life. Oh, blessed is the one, the one who has it totally together. Blessed is that one who comes in the name of the Lord. And to come in the name of somebody means to come with His authority, with His character, with all the weight of His kingdom. If I said I have come from Washington and in the name of the President I offer this to you, what would it mean? It would mean that I talked to the President and he gave me authentication to come to you and speak on his behalf, in his name. Usually that would be an ambassador that would do that. And he would come in the name of our president. That's what it means. Blessed is the emissary, the one who's come straight from the throne room of God. He's come in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. What are they expecting? They're expecting for the kingdom to come and the Messiah to speak. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed be the king of Israel. I would expect John to say that. When you read the different analyses of the different Gospels, the, the synoptic Gospels, they say, are a little bit hedging on the fact that it's claiming that Jesus is the messianic king. I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure if I was in that crowd and I heard people saying, Hosanna, son of David! Blessed is he who come in the name of the Lord. I'm not sure it would be too hard for me to conclude this crowd thinks the Messiah is here. Well, John doesn't leave any questions. The people cry out, he's the king, and he accurately described the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the king of the Jews. And then it closes with this phrase, peace in heaven 
and glory in the highest. You know, that's a very strange phrase. When Jesus had the angels announce his birth, what did they say? Peace on earth. You've all heard it in Christmas programs. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. This crowd is yelling, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. May there be radiating praise and an acknowledgement to God in all the heaven. You know what it tells us, I think? Things aren't totally right in the heaven yet. The book of Job, chapter 1, the enemy, Satan, the adversary, has access to the throne of heaven, even reaching to the courts of heaven. And as an adversary comes in and argues against the saints, it tells us in the book of Hebrews that we have an advocate who is calling for our forgiveness. And we get it, our reconciliation, because of what he's done. But this is before the cross. I don't think those people realized what they were saying. You know, before the cross, there wasn't reconciliation or peace in the heaven, was there? You see, throughout the Old Testament, God would forgive people. And Satan could come in and say, you're supposed to be a righteous, holy God. In the book of Hosea, you had this decrepit, immoral wife. The book of Isaiah describes this. Many of the Old Testament prophets talk about the people of Israel being immoral, murderous, breaking everyone the Ten Commandments. And then those, those books go on and talk about forgiveness. And Satan comes into the throne room of God and says, God, how do you forgive these people? Down through the centuries, you've had people in the Old Testament that believe in you and trust you, and you take them to live with you. How can you possibly do that? There wasn't peace in the heaven. There was almost silence in the heaven. But when this Messiah rode forth at triumphal entry, and the people cried, peace be in heaven, glory in the highest heaven, I don't think they have realized that in just a few days and a few hours, the prince of peace would put himself up, stretched up between heaven and earth, and the entire kingdom of evil would assault him and would seek to conquer him. And as he, like a tremendous absorption pad, like Philip Yancey describes, he just absorbs this tremendous, chaotic, violent, vicious thing called disobedience to the will of God. And a just, holy Lamb of God makes our peace. And forever answers the question, who is going to pay? And then there can be peace in the heaven. As we open the pages of, of the book of Revelation, the praise and glory of heaven as the angels sing and the redeemed saints sing, they always sing along these lines, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the one who has brought redemption through his blood. The triumphal entry crowd cried out, may there be peace in the heaven. May there be glory in the highest. And there is. Because of what our Savior did as we're going to be studying the coming weeks. The Pharisees got all uptight about that. They almost blew a cork. Man, I can see one of them coming over. I can see one of the Pharisees running up, trying to keep up with this, this little cult, you know, kind of running along the crowd, and people are bumping and everything. He says, 
He said, Jesus, you hear what they're crying out? Man, you know, Jesus is down there waving palm branches and they're yelling and screaming. Little kids are dancing. It's like a great big party. And this very sedate, very religious, probably has his collar on backwards. You know, they didn't do that in those days, but you got the idea. He's coming and said, do you hear what they're saying? You need to tell these people to be quiet. Man, tell these people to keep it down. Don't you know we're supposed to be religious? And this religious guy is saying, do you hear what they're saying? They're claiming that you're the son of David. You're the Messiah. We're going to have a riot here with these people. Tell them to be quiet. Religious people are always telling people to be quiet. Always. You know why? They have the idea that it's spiritual to be quiet. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it was quiet time. But you know, when you worship the Lord, there's also times of tremendous vibrating praise. You know, the enemies of Martin Luther said that he did the Jesuits who opposed Martin Luther said, it's not Martin Luther's theological treaties that bother us. It's his songs. They said, it's not the tracts that he writes that get us. It's all these thousands upon thousands of Germans singing. We can't stop that. And Jesus looked at this religious leader that probably wasn't antagonistic to him. And Jesus says to him, the rocks would cry out if these people didn't sing today. If these people didn't sing today, the rocks would cry out. You know, we're waiting for the rocks to cry out. Romans 8 describes nature as groaning. It describes nature as languishing. Describe her like a pregnant woman who's in the travail of birth, that pain. It's waiting for the glorious Son of God to come and for singing to break forth forever. You see, on this side of the coming of Christ, on this time before our Messiah has come to rule and reign, we're in kind of the travail, kind of the languishing time. But you know what God called you to be as believers? You know what he called you to do as the sons of God and the daughters of God? He calls you to, re to remember who Jesus is. And I ask you, who do you believe Jesus is? You've got some choices to make today. You can go away to university, some of the kids, some of you that are even older can go and you can study this material very carefully and you can decide, oh, it's just something the church made up and it's a nice thing, it's kind of a nice legend and it's kind of nice folklore and folklore has power in our lives and that can be kind of nice and especially when our kids come along, we want them to hear good Sunday school stories. So we'll let them come to church. We're not going to get really that excited about it ourselves and we're not going to be that much concerned about worship and praise and really being with God's children. We're not going to worry too much about telling other people about the Messiah, but it's a nice thing. It's a nice Christian thing. I want to take that false religious notion and blow it right out of the water because you can't do that with what I've talked to you about today. You know what moves in my soul today? I have to make a decision. Do I believe that I could be in Bethany and I could suddenly see a crowd moving forward with a tremendous leader 
a humble man, a gracious man, but an incredibly powerful man. And I could see that crowd take off their garments and make a saddle on an unbroken animal. And the entire city of Jerusalem, in a tremendous panorama, even today, it breaks forth. And the crowd sees the holy city, and they look at this man riding on the colt, and they put it all together, and they start to sing, Hosanna! Oh, save us, son of David! Save us, king of Israel! You are the one who's riding into God's city to bring not war but peace. You've got to make a decision. If you are there, will you join the crowd that sang praise? And will you believe it? If you will, you can sing for a lifetime. If you will, you'll be saved forever. But it's a mighty difference. In the hustle and bustle of modern life, we can think it's just nice religious stories and we forget, no, I've got to decide, did it happen? Was it right to claim that Jesus was the Savior? We must never forget that our Savior is the King not just of Gentiles, but of Jews. He's the King of all mankind because he's the only one that can bring us peace. The only one that can bring us joy. The only gentle ruler who will ever have the right to rule over the universe. It's an incredible choice. You choose to join the crowd and sing, All hail King Jesus. Or you choose to trust in all the schemes of men and eventually you'll be enslaved in an evil dictatorship because there's no other man given among men who's fit to rule. Neither is there salvation in any other for there is no other name given under heaven unto men whereby we might be saved. But there is one name and that name is Jesus. Hosanna, O save us.